The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Just as a reminder of where we've, where we've been and what we've been up to over the last, well, I think we're in session number 12 or something like that of this time period, which is God's people after the temple. Uh, we went all the way up to from the Exodus out of Egypt, really with Abraham and all that going into Egypt, but the Exodus out of Egypt with Moses through the, the wilderness for 40 years into the promised land and dwelling there through all the years of the kings and all those kinds of things. Been doing that for six years now, by the way. Uh, we've been going through that whole process. I think that's impressive. I mean, we, it took us six years to get through the Old Testament. <laughs> so, you know, we are, uh, we are now in the time period having been exiled to Babylon. The people of Israel come back into the land to find, obviously, the temple has been decimated. They're charged with rebuilding. So they are under what is considered to be second temple Jerusalem. So you've got the second temple being built. The first one being obviously Solomon's temple. The second one is really kind of a, it's sort of a shack at the beginning until the Romans get there, and we'll talk about that some other time. But essentially, they have some kind of, at least some modicum of a, of a, of a household that they can worship in there in Jerusalem. And they've been really plagued is one way to say it, by ruler after ruler coming into the land and dominating the region. And sometimes it's hard to keep timelines straight in your mind, but it's really simplified by just knowing that it's basically just the Greeks. Uh, It's been the Greeks from the beginning. They go by different names because they're divided under different generals. But you've got the Greeks, then the Ptolemies, then the Seleucids, and right now we're kind of under the reign of the Seleucids. And in conjunction with the Seleucids being in control, who are really just Greeks, just keep that in mind, they're really Greeks, we also have the Hasmoneans, who are Jewish. And the Hasmoneans have the desire to get all the Greeks out. But they're plagued by a problem. And that is, while they're trying to push the Greeks out, they also want to become like the Greeks. It's hard to have it both ways. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, is this, as the way the saying goes. So we're up now to the point where um, the, the Hasmoneans have sort of more or less taken control, and, or at least to some extent, and are kind of co-reigning, as it were, or operating in the same territory as the Seleucids. So you get the Seleucids, who are really Greeks, that are technically in control of the whole region, and the Hasmoneans, who are Jewish, who have put up enough of a fight to drive most of the Seleucids away from the region they're really concerned with, which is Jerusalem, given control of the temple to the Hasmoneans, and, uh, and it's kind of sitting in that little uh, bubble, as it were, for right now. And it's going to be more or less like that until the Romans come in in just a few years and drive out the Greeks and really occupy that land, which we'll see in the New Testament. But in the last couple of times, we've been looking at some of the big groups that are operating in Jewish society and that are more or less kind of dominating how society or how the culture is shaped there in Israel, which will eventually lead us into the New Testament. So after all the efforts were made by the Hasmonean dynasty to drive out the Greeks, the leaders after John Hyrcanus from Aristobulus in 104 all the way to Hyrcanus in 40 BC, it progressively became more Hellenized, which means they became more Greek. They started to like a lot more things Greek, and it it seemed like they could never stay away from the Greek culture. They always were drifting in that direction, in spite of what many of the Jews wanted at the time. Around the time of John Hyrcanus, there came this group um, called the Pharisees, and they sort of, this is one of the difficulties, as we've seen over the last or at least I've seen it, uh, over and had a heck of a time trying to figure it all out. But over the last uh, few sessions, is that the, the, this, around this time period, there's just not a lot written. So what we get is, we get this group called the Hasidim, who are the righteous ones, and they really want control over the temple. 
They're willing to work with the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans to try to drive out the Greeks so that they can get control of the temple. But then they sort of disappear off the scene, and a group that sounds just like them appear on the scene all of a sudden, right there at John Hyrcanus' time period, around 140, and, uh, and, and they're called the Pharisees. And it seems like they come from this group that was originally referred to as the Hasidim. And so they seem to be at least uh, kind of like them. And the, what the Pharisees tend to, to do is they want to separate, or at least that's where we think the term Pharisee comes from, is separatists, a, a group of people who want to get out from under the rule of the Greeks and want to establish Judaism again in the land. And they want to separate from all those people who want to be like the Greeks and who want to Hellenize. And so they kind of want to more or less purify Jewish religion in the land again. Uh, although they don't have much control to be able to do that. They're unwilling to submit to any of the Greek customs. Saw that again last week. That was part of what made them separatists is they didn't want to uh, participate in any of the Greek customs. We know that something that, was, that is really important to them is every book in the Old Testament. They're, they're dogmatic about the books in the Old Testament. Plus the tradition of the elders. So with the Pharisees, what becomes really important to, remember, to put in your mind is not only strict adherence to the Old Testament books from beginning to end, Genesis to Malachi, but then in addition to that is taking the rule of the elders and the traditions of old and those become nearly identical with the Word of God. So, traditions and the Word of God become their most important, the most important aspects of their, of their religion and the thing that they want to see Jewish religion grow to. So when, when you get to the New Testament and you start seeing Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, you're also going to see them particularly drill in on the traditions of the fathers. Like we see that scene like we talked about last week, the washing of the hands. Uh, how come your disciples don't wash their hands as is in accordance with the traditions of the elders? And so the, their tradition and the word of God are part and parcel of the same thing. Does that make sense? So you can see some of the similar kind of tendencies in something like, let's say, the Catholic Church, for instance. You'll have the Word of God. Yes, that's supposedly important. But then over here, the traditions of the church, also very important and tantamount to the same thing. Uh, so you kind of can see the similar, similar ideology. All right. This week, we're going to talk about the Sadducees. So having set up the Pharisees already, now we're going to distinguish them from the Sadducees and how they come about. It begins with a little story. If you can, now, again, with the Sadducees, we probably have less written on the Sadducees than we have on the Pharisees, which is not much, all right? So when it comes to the formulation of this group called the Sadducees, it's really hard to tell where their origin comes from. But many think that the term Sadducee comes from or is related to the high priest Zadok, and of the line of Zadok back in Malachi and at the close of the Old Testament. So it's sort of like a revival, as it were, of the priesthood of old uh, and the role that they played under the kingships of David and Solomon. But ultimately, we're not entirely sure. That's one possibility. There's some other possibilities ranging from, it's a derogatory term uh, for a group of people that they sort of took on themselves just like the Pharisees. Um, and various other things. But we don't, we don't really know, but it might be something like that, especially since they came to be known as priests, or they came to take over the priestly class. So maybe something like that. However, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees also come about during this period of political and religious turmoil during the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, and the revolt of the Maccabees. So it's, when the Maccabees come in and drive out some of the Greeks and take back over the temple, the result is not only a group of people called the Pharisees, we're pretty sure, but also this other group called the Sadducees. Which, it, what's weird about this is it's all these different political ideologies that take place. Like, like we talked about last week, or like I mentioned last week, if you think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, sort of like political groups you would think of today, 
there are some people who are going to be aligned with those political groups, like Republican and Democrat, who don't make their money off being Republicans or Democrats, but they just identify with their ideology. And then other people are going to make money off of being Republicans or Democrats because they're going to be running for office under the banner of Republican or Democrat. So it's very similar in the sense that you have a large swath of people who might consider themselves of the Pharisees or of the Sadducees, but they're not professional Pharisees or Sadducees. They just align with their ideology. Does that make sense? So that's kind of how it's functioning. And far more people being of the Pharisees. But all of them, even though they have different ideologies, arise out of this period of turmoil where they're being ruled by the Greeks. They come in and push them out, and as a result, there's several different pockets of Jews who see it different ways and who see their access to power or gaining power, gaining control back over the region in, in different ways, and the approach to that being, being slightly different. Um, so here's what basically happens is you've got the Pharisees who are kind of dominating the land. The Maccabees partner with them to try to drive out the Greeks, and it works, right? They get the Greeks mostly out. They get control back over the temple. And there was that issue of the Sabbath, you remember, of fighting on the Sabbath that they kind of parted ways on. But in one, for one reason or another, most of the people in the Maccabean dynasty and things like that associated themselves more with the ideology of the Pharisees than anybody else. So the Pharisees essentially had a member of the Pharisaic community on the throne in this person, John Hyrcanus, all right? So he's, I guess, the, technically the fourth ruler in this Hasmonean dynasty, 135 to 104 B.C. He's serving as both the political ruler and the high priest at the time. And the, he, was, he aligned himself with the Pharisaical community. So essentially, you as a Pharisee have one of your guys on the throne, right, as your leader. Pretty good situation, right, you would think. Well, during a banquet one time, as the story goes, one of the Pharisees, a man by the name of Eliezer, requested that John Hyrcanus give up the office of high priest because his mother had been a captive under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Sounds weird, right? You might be a child of Antiochus Epiphanes. You don't need to be a high priest. That's essentially the charge, right? The problem was, it wasn't true. But, here is a, a Pharisee, and, and according to his reputation, as it's recorded in history, Eliezer was a, what you might call a pot stirrer. Have you ever heard of these people? You've known these people? Back, back, back in history. They don't exist anymore, I'm told. Uh, but... But this guy, Eliezer, had a reputation for being something of a pot stirrer. And apparently at this banquet, he levied this charge against the, the, the ruler of the Jews, which apparently wasn't true. And why did he do that? I don't know. Because he wanted to stir the pot, I guess. Like, that's, that's what pot stirrers tend to want to do. So, this, uh, essentially, this accusation... It's thought that maybe his motives were to remove Hyrcanus' religious authority. So, in other words, it, it may have been that he really wanted to separate the roles of king and high priest. And, and if you can imagine, as far as the Pharisees go, that tends to be in line with their ideology. Let's keep it with the traditions and the way the word lays it out, there's a king and there's a high priest, never the twain shall meet, obviously until Jesus. And so he kind of, it seems like, wanted to separate his ruling from his religious authority. However, it had the opposite effect, and it infuriated him. So rather than make him want to give up power, it actually made him want to exercise it uh, even harder. And so, at this point, we are introduced to a man named Jonathan who is apparently a member of the Sadducees. This is really the first time in history we ever get mention of the Sadducees 
So we don't really know where they come from. We get some description as to what they were, but we don't really know how they formed or, or anything like that. We can only make educated guesses. But we're introduced to this man, Jonathan, who is a member of the Sadducees. Incidentally, he's one of only two Sadducees ever really named in Josephus' writing. So that's all, that's all we've got is, is this guy and one other. And so Jonathan gets the ear of John Hyrcanus, and he tells him, look, this guy, Eliezer, you think he's just a potster, but he actually represents the ideology of all the Pharisees. That's what they all want. They want you to give up your religious authority and, and just be over here as king. So what he's doing, they may boo and hiss at, but that's just on the surface. They really are in line with him, and we're going to prove it. So he, Jonathan presents to him this idea to kind of fish out the Pharisees for who they really are. And so he tells John Hyrcanus what we need to do is we need to tell the Pharisees, look, if, um, if you really disagree with this Eleazar, this pot stirrer, then have him executed. So now the rubber's meeting the road. Put him to death. And so Hyrcanus thinks this is a really good idea, and he presents this to the Pharisees, and he says, look, if you really are in disagreement with this guy's ideology, then put him to death. Well, that happens to rub up against the Pharisees' ideology of the death penalty, apparently until Acts chapter 7. Uh, <laughs> till these Christians come along, and then all of a sudden, sounds like a good idea. So they, uh, they don't really want to do that. So they're like, well, we don't, we don't really believe we should put him to death or something like that. Which, to John Hyrcanus, says everything that he needs to know, that you really are in league with him, and that's really what you want too. You align yourself with him. So John Hyrcanus denounces his own uh, affiliation with the Pharisaical community and turns to the Sadduceical community. And apparently, this is the beginning of the Sadducees' power. From this point, through the Roman Empire, the Sadducees will be the ones in control. This is apparently the beginning of that. Such a strange story, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds like they had two pot stirrers going on. And, uh, yes, Jonathan the Sadducee was the, a little bit more shrewd pot stirrer, it turns out. Uh, but apparently, this is the beginning of the Sadducees' political power. So, we've got to really think now, if we're, if we're, you know, the Sadducees are in power, what makes them qualitatively different from the Pharisees? And, so again, say, say that again. Pretty much. Yeah, so, which, I'll talk more about this in just a second, but, yeah, pretty much they're in political power. They, so, the Pharisees will always be very influential in the region over the people, but the ones who actually have the cards in their hands are the Sadducees, and they won't ever let that go. They become the aristocracy, the ruling class, the... Yeah, the, the ones that are always in political power. So, and and it, it's weird, too, because the, the ideology of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is not, it's not necessarily just liberal and conservative. Like we would think of like our political system right now, liberal and conservative. It doesn't really break down along those lines exactly. It's, um, it, it, they're kind of a hodgepodge. Each are kind of conservative in their own way. Each are kind of liberal in their own way. Right? The Pharisees, for all their conservatism, of the, if, if there's going to be one of the rulers that knows, can quote the Old Testament word for word, it's probably going to be in the Pharisaical community. All right? But yet at the same time, they elevate the role of tradition of the elders to be the same thing as the word. So in some ways, very conservative, and in other ways, very liberal. And then we're going to see in the Sadducees, it's going to be the same thing. In some ways, in different ways, they're conservative, and in different ways, they're more liberal, right? So it doesn't necessarily break down on those lines, but yes, they hold the, 
the political capital, essentially. Um, so the Sadducees, what makes them different is they refused to accept the traditions of the elders as authoritative. So this is where it gets really difficult to wrap our minds around because of a lack of information, exactly what it is they're saying they believe. So they reject the traditions of the elders as authoritative, and instead they, say, they elevate the law of Moses and hold to the law of Moses more literally and exclusively than the Pharisees do. So in other words, they're saying to the Pharisees, you can take your tradition and throw it off a cliff for all we care. It doesn't matter to us at all. We're going straight back to the Word, and we're doing this literally, word for word. And it all starts with the law of Moses. So they take the Torah, and they lift it up and say, word for word, this is what we're doing. Right? That's not all bad. Now, there's some debate as to what exactly that means. Does that mean that you throw out the rest of the books and you only hold to the five books of the Torah? Or do you actually hold the rest of the books, there, the Bible, in other words, do you, do you treat the whole Bible the same way? And that's up for some debate. There's a tradition that arose out of the early church fathers with a couple of people, one named Origen, another Jerome, who translated the Vulgate. Um, more on him later. But there are several others who basically understood that the Sadducees accepted only the first five books of the Bible and rejected all the rest of them. But then other people say, no, 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 they really held all the books, they believed all of them were authoritative, but the, all of them stemmed from the law of Moses. So in other words, here's the law of Moses, and the rest of the books of the Bible are really just interpreting the law of Moses, which is the big show, okay, the big kahuna, all right? So it's kind of confusing as to what they actually believe, but, but they elevated the law of Moses that much is very clear, and the point being that they're taking what the Pharisees are saying and promoting as authoritative, that being the tradition of the elders, and they're saying, get rid of that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people did in the past. This, it's all about the Word of God that's in front of us. Um, so, take that for what it's worth. Questions on that? Is that clear as mud? All right, good deal. Now, in comparison, the Pharisees and the Sadducees differed in three main areas. First, fate, or you might say divine providence, predestination, even as we would say it in uh, modern circles. Second, free will and human responsibility. Third, immortality with reward and punishment. So, as we're thinking about this, in some ways we might say with the Sadducees, hey, throwing out the tradition and going strictly with the Word of God sounds really good to me. That sounds like, that sounds like conservatism at its, at its root, right? That, that sounds like what we would, where we would go or what we would be in. But then with regard to some other things, they differ from the Pharisees in such ways that we would part company with them and understand the word differently. So, regarding fate and free will, the Sadducees considered human beings fully responsible for their decisions and actions. They take away fate and say there is no such thing, maintaining instead that we ourselves are the causes of what is good and receive what is evil from our own folly. So think about that for just a second. Essentially what the Sadducees are saying is, God is basically not active in the world around you. In any real meaningful way. So in some ways, the Sadducees operate a lot like deists. Where God is out there, He created it, this is the word that He gave us, these are the, this is the operation manual under which we should live, and we should live strictly by its words. But in regards to day-to-day -day activities, God is not active, and He doesn't care. What happens bad to us is what we reap because of our own foolishness. 
And anything good that happens is a result of our good choices. But essentially, there is no such thing that is a certain fate. There is no predestination. There is no whatever. It all operates off complete free will. You have the opportunity to do whatever it is that you want to, and you will reap good for good choices, and you will reap bad for folly. Make sense? Not asking if you agree. Does it make sense? (laughs) All right. So we would look at that and go, wait a minute. That's crazy. That's not even what the Word is actually saying, if you actually do really believe the Bible. But regarding, and regarding the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all noted that the Sadducees believed that there is no resurrection. Luke wrote also in the book of Acts that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits. So let's read some of that. Let's read Matthew. I want to at least give us kind of a, a little sampling of what the New Testament has to say. Matthew twenty-two, twenty-three to 33. That same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. So remember, there's two things already coming about culturally in this passage already. First is given to you by the author, Matthew, who says they say there is no resurrection. That's consistent with the Sadducees. But then they also go back to the law of Moses, which they adhere to strictly, and say, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, therefore, there, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So, too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, what do you know already? They don't believe there is a resurrection. So what is the trap? Why would they be asking a question about the resurrection that they don't believe in? Underneath this question is, are you a Pharisee or are you a Sadducee? The Pharisees are fair, you see, because they believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't. Right? So it's very easy to remember. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Well, Jesus, how are you going to parse this one out if there really is a resurrection? Are you a Pharisee, or are you, do you make more sense, and you're a Sadducee like the rest of us? But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> just cut, cut through it all and just get right to the heart of it. You're wrong. All right? Because you know neither the Scriptures, uh-oh, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Where is their story recorded? Genesis, the first five books of the Bible. Have you not read the first five books of the Bible that you love so much? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham uh, and Isaac and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Uh, So Jesus cuts to the quick and explains them. But if you can grasp just a few things about the Sadducees going into the reading of the New Testament, you can see what kind of situation Jesus is in right there with just the question of the Sadducees. Posing this question from the the Old Testament uh, in the resurrection of the dead. Now, according to... Let me go to the next slide. According to Josephus... Josephus is a a Jewish historian, by the way. I I keep using his name. I don't know if I've ever defined him. But he's a a Jewish historian. He wrote a ton of things back in this day and, and... really the day of the Romans, and, and we get a lot of information of Jewish history based on, on things that he said. But according to him, Sadducees both believed that, the soul, that souls die with the bodies, 
and rejected the belief of the immortal duration of the soul. So that means they rejected any punishment or rewards after this life. So essentially, when you die, you're worm food. You go into the ground, and that's it. You just disintegrate. Nothing more. So it does call into question how strictly they read their Bible, doesn't it? Right? I, I, I love my Bible. We love the first five books of the Bible. Da, da, da. And then Jesus, they one questioning session with Jesus, and he goes, have you not read the Bible that you say you love? And it says this in it. Have you not ever understood that he says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob? Uh, and then, of course, the the writers of the New Testament are going to demonstrate for us even in the Mount of Transfiguration, who appears there with Jesus when he is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah, right? And the disciples recognize them and go, well, that's Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they did that. I don't know if they were in name tags or what. But somehow they recognized them and they said, that's Moses and Elijah, and why don't we build them tents? Uh, so, what's that? Oh, no, no artificial intelligence then? I no. Chat GPT might have told them. Um, so, so they rejected any form of afterlife, any form of reward or punishment. The soul is not immortal. It just dies with you when you die. And that's the end of all things. Now, it does raise the question of the actual consequences of this life if there is no eternity to come. Doesn't it? What, then what? One, what is the meaning of the life that you live? Why live it to God at all? Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no point. Right? And he even says, as James just pointed out, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we see that in this life, there are consequences in the age to come. In fact, everything that I preach, everything that we study here, everything that we do here as a church body is all predicated on life after death. There's absolutely no reason to be here on Sunday morning and worship together as a church body if there is no resurrection of the dead. And everything that we do no matter what it is, everything from top to bottom that we do is all predicated on life after death. Everything that we, like I said, everything we preach. You, you giving up riches, giving of your money. It's all predicated on life after death. If it's not real, then keep it all for yourself. But if, as what Jesus is saying is true, Store it for yourself treasure in heaven. And part of that is your generosity, right? So it's all predicated on that. So then it would call into question for the Sadducees, what's the point of anything then? It calls into question not just for the Sadducees, but for your atheistic friends. People that you know don't believe in God at all, or don't believe in Jesus, or certainly don't worship Him in any real way. Don't practically believe is what I mean. Not, not just... Not just, well, I believe there is a God. I don't mean that. I mean, I mean, actively live like there is a God who is the judge. That's the same question for them. Then what is the point of life? And they might say, well, it's to live a legacy. That's hogwash. Live a legacy for whom? For your kids who are also going to die? Out of all the people that have ever lived, there's a lot of people. Billions and billions of people. How many names do you know? Historically, all the people that have ever lived. Comparatively, the ones that make it in the history books, a drop in the ocean. All right, some of you are 60, 70, 80 years old. You hadn't made it there yet. Probably not going to make it, right? Into the history books. I'm probably not either. Most of us, all of us in this room, I would just go ahead and say, we're probably not going to make it as one of those people that are notorious or infamous for good or bad deeds, right? 
So then what legacy are you actually leaving? How many great, 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 great grandparents do you know? Of yours. I mean, maybe you've done your Ancestry.com stuff and you've gotten all the way back seven generations and you've got a few names pegged, but you probably don't know much about them other than a name. What kind of legacy did they leave you? I'm sure something, but do you know what it was? So what is the real point then? And what kind of legacy are you actually going to leave if there is no life after death? So it calls into question all of this, doesn't it? Why would you be so, such an adherent to the law of Moses and such an ardent defender of the law of Moses? We must take over the temple. We must have power. For what? For what reason? There's no hearses dragging U-Hauls, right? As they say. Go ahead. <laughs> and here's what it is. Everything's chasing after the wind. <laughs> it's all worth it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He does exist. Yeah. Um, all right. So no punishment, no rewards, no anything. So there was a rivalry that obviously went on early on between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Obviously because of the ideological difference, they're at odds with each other, right? Well, here's the, the, uh, the rub. The Pharisees didn't have really the political power. As we saw, that kind of transition over the Sadducees. The one thing that the Pharisees did have is the power of the people. Because the Pharisees invested very early on in getting into the synagogues and teaching the people the Word of God in the synagogues. So the people on the whole, largely in Jewish society, were pharisaical in their ideology. The Sadducees may have upheld the Word and rejected tradition and stayed very closely to the Word of God, but as you can see, it didn't really work its way out in their ideology. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe well, there was really no hope. And that doesn't appeal to just the average person. <laughs> I mean, it, this is the reason why, you know, I, I think there, there will be a shelf life to a lot of, like, you know, kind of the rise of some, some atheism, mainly because of a couple of, couple of things. One, they don't procreate. So, right, like, this is, this is just true. They, they don't believe that you should have kids, and obviously their ideology that there is no God in your worm food when you die means who really cares what happens now? Eat, drink, and be merry, and for, for tomorrow you die. And guess what you can't do when you have kids? Eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> you just... <laughs> I mean, amen somebody, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, there goes your money. It's <laughs> out the window. You know, uh, all, you got to get a babysitter just to go to the movies or go to, out to eat, you know, or something. So, you, you know, you can't do that. So they don't, there's a shelf life to that, as far as that goes. And the ideology of your worm food when you die just does not appeal to a lot of people. It might, in various moments in time, have big swings of adoption and things like that. But on the whole... You can see even now in our culture, people don't want to believe that. And believe it or not, a lot of people don't associate with religion. They would call themselves nuns. But if you talk to them, they are very superstitious. Very. They're finding other things. They may not be finding Christianity because we may not be bold with the gospel. But they're filling the void, yes, somehow. You can bet that, because to be honest with you, atheism just is not that appealing. Neither is deism. Neither, neither is when you die your worm food, right? It's just, and it doesn't mesh with our experience, what we actually believe. So, as you can imagine, when the Pharisees get into the synagogues and begin teaching the masses, that ideology sort of wins the day. And so a lot of people align themselves with the Pharisees because the Pharisees are in the synagogues. But the Sadducees had the power of the purse. They were kind of the aristocracy. 
And they ruled in the temple in Jerusalem. They kind of consolidated their efforts to, to Jerusalem. So, but believe it or not, the way the Sadducees had to operate in the temple was in accordance with the Pharisees' ideology. Isn't that weird? Pharisees, the Sadducees, though they kind of ruled the temple and they were the high priestly class, all the high priests you read about in the New Testament, they're all Sadducees. Right? Everyone around them, most of the Sanhedrin, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, most of them were all Sadducees. All right? So very few Pharisees amongst, amongst the ruling class. But they operated in accordance with the rules of the Pharisees because the people would have killed them otherwise. Right? So a lot of power in the people. All right. So another reason for the disputes. So there was the dispute first amongst the the class of the normal people versus the aristocracy. But then another reason for the disputes between the Sadducees and Pharisees arose from differences concerning assimilation into the surrounding Gentile world. The key question for first century Jews was, how much may a Jew become a Greek and still be a Jew? So the Sadducees are wanting to move into Greek society, and they feel like in order to maintain their place and their power, to re retain their place and their power, they could be more like the Greek rulers and then later the Roman rulers. The Pharisees felt like that shouldn't be the case. Now, when it becomes uh, the question of these Christians in Acts, the question is, don't they have to become Jews first in order to get to Jesus? Right? And this is a question from the Pharisaical community. Well, we're not going to become like the Gentiles. We're if we're going to become like Christians, shouldn't how, are we going to meet them there? At this point, shouldn't they have to go this way first and then become Christians? Right? Don't they have to become Jews? We're not becoming Gentiles. They're becoming Jews first and then going to Christianity. So the question kind of gets kicked down the road a little bit into the New Testament church. But uh, the debate here amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees is, well, how much like Greeks can we become, or Romans, as it were, um, before, you know, and still be a Jew. And then, then the other question was, if we, isn't this the best way to maintain our power? Is if we actually kind of adopt some of the Greek or later Roman way of thinking so that they don't crush us. You can see this in the New Testament. This is the debate that they're having in John 11, 47 to 53. And this is all centered around Jesus, especially in his resurrection of Lazarus. So this is right after he raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, so chief priests would be the Sadduceeical class, basically the, the ones that are the priests in the, in the temple. Chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, so pause right there. What's the concern? Who's in power? So here's the Sadducees, the chief priests, that are coming together with the Pharisees. And now the Pharisees are kind of starting to see a little bit of the side of the Sadducees. Sadducees and, and Caiaphas is about to speak up, who is the high priest who is a Sadducee. He's about to speak up and, and kind of, you know, really give some just elucidation to this whole, you know, commentary. But basically, their concern is our best access to power is being more like the Romans, appeasing the Romans, keeping quiet, not causing a stink. And if this guy goes around raising the dead, he's going to cause a stink. I mean, think about it. If somebody's walking out to cemeteries out here and calling dead people up from the grave, it's going to be on the 8 o'clock news, or at least on... YouTube, maybe. I don't know if the news stations will cover it. <laughs> Keep it quiet. <laughs> 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, he's a Sadducee, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better 
for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So, what does Caiaphas propose as a solution? Killing. The easiest solution is murder. Imagine that. They also plot, this is the thing that kills me about this passage, they also plot to kill Lazarus. Read it. Just go back and read it sometime. They make a plot to kill Lazarus. He raised this guy from the dead. What do we do? I don't know. Kill him. <laughs> what? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So he's saying as high priest, he didn't even know it, but God spoke through him, isn't it better that one man should die for the nation? Because that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. Which, that I, I wanted to include those verses, even though they don't necessarily pertain to this point, because it makes the broader point of what I've been saying this whole time, that God is shaping history. So the ideology of the Sadducees and the ideology of the Pharisees, I would contend, was absolutely necessary to both separate and be at odds with one another and then come together so that the Son of God could die on behalf of God's people. That all of those things had to transpire in order for this to take place. And John is pointing that out here that even the Sadduceeical high priest is speaking out of his mind, unbeknownst to him, prophesying what was going to take place in this evil concoction that they come up with to kill the Son of God. That even that was in accordance with God's predestined plan, which Peter will tell you in Acts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the way they get around it is they hold the cards of power, so they just kill anybody who blasphemes, but they don't care if they do blaspheme themselves. Yeah, that's kind of typically how it goes with some of that stuff. Um, the rivalry between the two groups may have been occasioned fur by, further by disparities in wealth and social standings. Pharisees represented the middle class in contrast to the more affluent Sadducees. So you, you, hopefully you're, what you're kind of seeing, and I, I get that a lot of this is history and you know, trying to kind of, I'm trying to kind of bring in a little bit of the New Testament, just kind of shape your understanding, but hopefully you're starting to see the formation of these groups and why the, his, the, the tension in the land is bringing these groups about and what they sort of represent and what they're doing and why the plans that they make in the New Testament actually kind of make sense, at least in accordance with their ideology. It's, this is their nature. This is what they've been struggling with. They, they don't want to be ruled by anyone. They want to throw off the rule and authority. But it turns out they don't even want to be ruled by God. Right? So, so I think what we're starting to see in both the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that it, it is possible to be so freedom-minded, so libertarian in your ideology that you don't want to be ruled by even God himself. Right? And that, that turns out to be exactly where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are. And yet at the same time, they would tell you, we're following the Word of God. But Jesus is going to come in and say, you're not following the Word of God. If you were, you would recognize me because Moses and, and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of them were talking about me. But you don't recognize me because you're of your father the devil. Wait, we can be so even entrenched in the Bible, we would say, and yet be children of the devil? How's that possible? We see it in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Go ahead, Timothy.
No, even Paul, in that passage, when he talks about being a Pharisee, he, he will say uh, he was rising in the ranks in accordance with the tradition of the elders. Like, he was a Pharisee in the sense that he, had, he adhered to tradition and all those kinds of things. It wasn't inherently bad to be a Pharisee. In fact, saying you were a Pharisee to a community of Jews would be like, oh, oh, he was, like, he had bought in hook, line, and sinker the whole deal. Like, you, you may align with Pharisaical ideology. I was a Pharisee, right? You, you, might, you might vote Republican. I was chairman of the RNC, all right? That's how Republican I was, right? Or whatever you want to relate that to, right? So it, it was a whole different thing to actually make your living by being a Pharisee. So, of course, in terms of his adherence to the Word, his knowledge of the Word, and his adherence to the tradition of the elders. He was headed above anyone of his age, he says. Right? So, he puts all of that in conjunction with the rubbish that he now considers it in Christ. But, but everything that I had gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. All of it drove me deeper away from Christ, in other words. And didn't at all help me understand my actual need for him. So, so yeah, it's not necessarily an insult to be a Pharisee at all. But we think of it that way, you know. So that's, that's the other hope, is that as we kind of look at these, that you sort of see that, that there, you know, you might put yourself in one of these categories. Of like, if I was living back then, I guess I, guess I would kind of align with the Pharisees. We haven't got to the Essenes yet. You'll probably more align with them, but you know, you know, I, I would probably more align with this group or this group. You can kind of see yourself in that crowd. And so when you get to the New Testament, you don't necessarily see the Pharisees and the Sadducees as inherently the bad guys. But actually, talk, talking and acting and things like that on behalf of the regular everyday person. So that when Jesus comes in, you can understand why they're upset with where Jesus, you know, where Jesus pushes against some of their ideology and why, why they are the way they are. You know, it's helpful anyway. Other questions? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll. Okay. Right. Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your, your word. We're grateful for everything that you have taught to us, that you have shown us through history, and I pray that all of this will be, uh, a, will serve for our own, not just knowledge that puffs up, but knowledge of you that would help us to understand your word better, that would help us to grow more in love with you in the years to come. So we pray that this would bear fruit long into the future, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.